Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. Elemental human capacities, like friendship and love in its many forms, teaching and learning, have tremendous, constant, practical force. We don't think of these in terms of what has given our species the grit to endure through hard times and even evolve in the long run. They're lived social intelligence, part of the everyday, and so can be hard to see as serious amidst the high tumult of our age. But these kinds of human qualities are what Nicholas Christakis studies from his human nature lab at Yale and in his life generously lived. I spoke with him in January 2020, and this conversation shaped how I made sense of the past year, how I looked for hope within it. His thoughts feel more immediately applicable to the world that is now upon us. He offers a wide lens, a broad perspective that deepens and refreshes. It's like standing on a 10,000-foot plateau and noticing that one hill is 300 feet and one hill is 900 feet and becoming obsessed at what is it that explains the difference between these two hills. But if you step off the plateau and go at some distance, you see that actually those are two mountains. And actually, the forces you were previously focused on, sort of of local erosion or human action, are trivial in comparison to the plate tectonic and volcanic forces that cause these huge mountains. And it's those kinds of super powerful forces acting below the surface that interest me, especially since... To my eye, those forces are primarily forces for good, and I think they've been neglected. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Nicholas Christakis is the author of several books, including Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. He's also well-known for his work in social contagion, behavioral contagion, which he brought to bear in his most recent 2020 book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. He lives in New Haven, Connecticut, where he's the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale. You were born in New Haven, um, yes. <laughs> where you are now. Um, yes. And it sounds like your parents were both. It's like the circle of life. Right, <laughs> you know? right. But they were Greek and they were they yes. were Fulbright scholars, graduate students. Yeah, at how Yale. did you know that? That's right. I, I have done I mean, my homework. You're going to be amazed at how much I know about you now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. They, uh, their stories, and I don't know how much you want to go into it, but it's sort of an amazing story, in particular in my mother's case. My my father came from a kind of a middle-class background in Greece. My dad wanted to be an actor, but his father insisted that he go into physics. <laughs> and so my father winds up as a Fulbright scholar at Princeton in the 1950s, arriving just after Einstein dies. Hmm. Uh, and my mother, who came from a kind of well-to-do family in Greece, astonishingly had in her dad a man who was willing to educate his daughters, hmm. which I have to emphasize is really unusual for a man of his generation in Greece. Right. And so she got into um, Vassar, also on a Fulbright, and comes to the United States. So they independently come, and then they're set up through the Greek community here, and 
et cetera. Ah. And then they both go to graduate school at Yale. Right. And that's where I'm that's born. That's where you're born. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I start most of my conversations, whoever I'm speaking to, to inquire about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood, however you would hmm. define that now. I've seen you say that you were raised on a heavy diet of Greek mythology. I don't know if if that's where your mind would go with that. Well, not on the religious sense necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the the Greek mythology, yes, that's true. And uh, the story in my childhood is is that my mother and father used to take me to the Greek Orthodox Church. I want to say it was St. Constantine, but I can't remember, in in Washington, D.C. when I was growing up. And um, one day I uh, I was so annoyed by this that I vomited in the aisle and my parents decided <laughs> that that would not be taken back. <laughs> that was but, um, it. That was it. Yes, that was my childish way of and, – and that was sort of my religious upbringing. And I, I would describe myself as agnostic but – with high propensity to religiosity. Oh, okay. That's uh, how I would describe myself. <laughs> we, could talk about, we could talk about that for a couple mm. of hours. For that. I love that. Mm. Um, so as you know, as you well know, we're speaking at a moment in which I think many Americans and, and people in many uh, countries around the globe would say tribalism suddenly feels more possible and more prevalent. Mm. And one of the, you know, a, a kind of thrust of your scholarship and what you write about is that um, that that same capacity that is in human nature, that is in our inhuman experience to to surrender our individuality and feel so aligned with it, a collective in a way that that can surprise us and might even go against our self-interest and, and turn us against others, that within that very, the other side of that same capacity is our ability to be charitable. Mm. Um, and this is not a message that science or the academy, or as I'm very focused on journalism, um, has been presenting uh, in modernity. So, yeah, I just really want to... Yeah, I mean, start I think, that up. yeah, I mean, I think first of all, I would emphasize that what I'm interested in is not so much the qualities that make a human being as an individual good. I'm interested in the qualities that make a collective good. Right. How right. how is it that a group of humans come together to form a good society? And in what way and to what extent has evolution equipped us with these capacities? And just to illustrate very quickly. I'm talking, for example, about our capacity for love and friendship and cooperation. Yeah, and we're going to go into all those things. Yeah. Yeah. And teaching, all of which are quite unusual in the animal kingdom, and yet we we humans do this. Certain other animals also do this. But the point is that for too long, in my view, as you've already mentioned, scientists and, you know, citizens on the street have have focused on the dark side of human nature, on our Mm -hmm. propensity for for uh, selfishness and tribalism and mendacity and cruelty and violence as if this were a natural or normal or primary state of affairs. And yet I think the bright side has been denied the attention it deserves because equally we are capable of love and friendship and and teaching and cooperation and all these other other wonderful things. And in fact, I would argue that it's those qualities are uh, more powerful than the bad qualities and therefore in some ways much more important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
if, if, if every time I came near you, you, you know, were mean to me or you filled me with fake news, you know, you, you told me falsehoods about the environment in a way that was detrimental to my capacity to survive in the environment or you killed me, yeah. I would be better off living apart from you. But we don't do that. We live together. And so therefore, the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. And they did outweigh the costs. And the question is, how did that state of affairs right. come to be? It, I think it's also an important distinction that you're, you're working on long time scales. You're talking about evolutionary yes. forces. You're not talking about historical moments or historical, the arc, even the arc of history. Um, yes. You're talking about the arc of evolution. Yeah. I mean, I think cultural and historical forces are extremely important and they're very powerful. But I'm interested in forces that have been operating for much longer periods of time and that in, in, I would argue are more powerful and more fundamental. And in fact, every argument that I make in the book, I could make about human beings uh, who were alive 10,000 years ago before the action of a lot of the technological and historical forces that we take as so relevant and ascendant today. Right. So we were capable of love and friendship and living together 10,000 years ago. And we were also capable of violence, of course, then too. But all of these things were a part of our nature um, well before we then had this overlay of cultural and technological and historical forces acting. And in some ways, I would argue that those forces are a thin veneer overlaid uh, on a much uh, more fundamental edifice. And one of the metaphors that I use in the book is that in some ways we're deluded into thinking that these cultural forces and cultural differences are so big and so important. And it's like standing on a 10,000-foot plateau and noticing that one hill is 300 feet and one hill is 900 feet and becoming obsessed at what is it that explains the difference between these two hills. But if you step off the plateau and go at some distance, you see that actually those are two mountains, one of which is 10,300 feet and the other of which is 10,900 feet. Huh. And actually the forces you were previously focused on sort of of local erosion or human action actually are trivial in comparison to the plate tectonic and volcanic forces that cause these huge mountains. And it's those kinds of super powerful forces acting below the surface that uh, interest me, especially since, to my eye, those forces are primarily forces for good, and I think they've been neglected. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with sociologist Nicholas Christakis. His research describes cultural universals that our species has evolved, an array or suite of capacities that make society possible. These include love, friendship, teaching, cooperation, and the ability to recognize the uniqueness of other individuals. Let's kind of walk through some of the aspects. You, what you describe as a, a social suite, a suite of capacities, which you're, you're really saying that these things are like genetic coding for the structure and function of our societal life, right? Like yes. They're, not, they're, they're like breathing. They're automatic, not socially yes. engineered. Um, and, and one thing that you've said 
you know, is that the social engineering cannot escape mm-hmm. this social suite. You know, there's a striking sentence. So there is no society on earth that has an easy job of suppressing our innate tendencies to love, friendship, and cooperation. It's not quite that simple. There are also ways in which social engineering tried to do something that sounded utopian, and that doesn't work either if it, if it goes mm-hmm. against this way mm-hmm. where we are made. It's really what you're mm-hmm. saying, built. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, um, the bottom line of all of this is that there's really only one way to be social, and there are certain archetypical structures and ways of organizing society that we we basically are innately programmed to manifest and that we can no more wake up and make a society inconsistent with those impulses than ants can wake up and make beehives. Mm-hmm. You know, we – This is how we live socially. It's been shaped by natural selection and we are endowed with these capacities and it takes a very powerful force to stop it. And these capacities include, for instance, the fact that we love the people we're having sex with. We form sentimental attachments to them. We are uh, technically monogamous. We uh, befriend each other. We form long-term non-reproductive unions with other members of our species. This is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom. We do it. Certain other primates do it. Uh, Elephants do it. Certain cetacean species do it. We form friendships with unrelated people. It's universal in human groups. We we cooperate with each other altruistically. We're kind to strangers, uh, again, to unrelated individuals. This is different than many other types of cooperation, which are also seen in other animal species, but often that cooperation is between genetically related individuals. Mm -hmm. We do it with genetically unrelated individuals. We we teach each other things. People take this for granted, but it's actually yeah. unbelievable. I love, I love this. I love this, that this is in the social suite, teaching and social learning. Yeah. So We so don't I, think about that as a beautiful thing we do and that we all participate in all of yes. our lives. Right. Yes. Yes. And it's a kind of altruism. It's a kind of gift when you teach someone something. And, 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 and if, you, if you think about it, like uh, basically every animal can learn. You know, a little fish can learn that if it swims up to the light, it'll find food there. Uh, that's independent learning. And some animals learn socially. And this is extremely efficient. So, so you put your hand in the fire and you learn that it burns. So you've acquired some knowledge at some price. Or I can watch you put your hand in the fire and I get almost as much knowledge for none of the price, which is really super efficient. You know, or, or I observe right. you eat red berries and you die. Right, right. And, and so now I've learned something at no cost. It's yeah. amazing, right? Right. right? But we do something even more than that. We copy each other. We imitate each other. We learn from each other, which is rare in the animal kingdom, although it happens. We teach each other things. We set out to teach you how to build a fire. And this is exceedingly rare, but it's universal in us. And so these are some very positive, amazing qualities that are shaped by natural selection, are encoded in our genes, and are universal in humans, and that are good, and and that serve to countermand some of our, you know, vile propensities, which right. alas we also have. You're so right. It's it's like these things are so obvious and taken for granted. Um, but it 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 harms us that we don't take them as seriously yes. as we do. What is dark and evil and destructive? Um, yes. You know, and I think I was thinking as I was reading you, I was thinking, you know, there's this phrase, the better angels of our nature, mm-hmm. right, from Lincoln. And like that is a phrase that you can throw into any conversation, any speech. And we all know 
right? We know what that means. We mm-hmm. we understand that, but but we don't actively. Certainly, when we think about our life, our shared life, our societal life, our political life, we kind of treat that like a you know a sidebar for special occasions and not as something yeah, like a, right <laughs> like a nice to have instead of must have yeah uh, well first of all i mean that's a magnificent phrase and it's also as you know the title of my colleague steve pinker's fantastic book and i think steven argues correctly in my view that beginning around 300 years ago with the technological advances of the Enlightenment and the philosophical moves in the Enlightenment, you know, committed to the equality of hum- all human beings, uh, sort of democratic governance and other ideas, which, to be fair, were unequally applied, right? Yes. But, but nevertheless, they started at a particular historical moment in Europe and spread around the world from there. So, so there was no doubt that these technological advances and these these philosophical moves have contributed to an extraordinary improvement in human well-being. You know, we're safer, we live longer, uh, we have greater freedom. It's unbelievable what's happened in the last 300 years. But my argument is that you don't need to just look at what I would regard as relatively recent historical and cultural forces to get an account of a good life. Deeper, more powerful, more ancient forces are at work propelling a good society, endowing us with these wonderful capacities, which were always there, are still there, are unavoidable. And in that, if anything, these these moves that we've made as a species in the last few hundred years are, again, as I said, this sort of thin veneer over this more fundamental reality. Well, and— Of the better angels of our nature. Right. And also, as you as you acknowledge, and I think it's important to underscore that, you know, and that we, right? I mean, I'm learning. I'm learning to use that word we more carefully because that mm-hmm. we was incomplete and uneven, right, of mm-hmm. who, was, who was receiving all that benefit. Um, yeah, I think you mean during the historical, but I would yeah. say that one of the advantages of my argument is that we— Everyone got the benefit. It was all of us. It was our human species, you know. Love was present everywhere and at all times. Okay, and that's an important point, too. Yeah, Yeah, we didn't need the Enlightenment to allow us to be— We didn't need the Enlightenment to love or be friends. Okay, but yeah, and I think— That's my point. Yes, yes, yes. And I I think for a moment like this where there is, I mean, as I see it, a a real— imperative, a calling for us to step more robustly into these capacities. Mm. Um, I went, so, I, so what I'd like to do is, is kind of dwell on some of these aspects so that you just named and get into some of the nuance of them, which mm. is really thought-provoking and I think uh, potentially behavior-provoking. <laughs> mm. mm. um, okay, so, so love, mm. um, which is one of the most watered-down and overused words in the English language. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, as you point out, I think it's so interesting to me about your research is that, um, yeah, as you said, we don't just have sex, we form loving attachment Mm -hmm. and that this is true in all kinds of societies and sexual preferences. It's also Mm -hmm. true in places that are not, where monogamy is not the rule. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. like, like, let's take this in, that this is what it means to be human, to love. Yes, I think it's a key aspect of our capacities. We've been endowed with this capacity, again, to form sentimental attachment to people we're having sex with, whether it's monogamous, polygynous, polyandrous, whether it's straight or gay. 
uh, you know, we could mate with each other and, and many animals do that, but we don't just do that. And and, and there, just to back up for a moment, there's there's an idea in evolutionary biology that, are, that is known as a pre-adaptation or an exaptation. That's when evolution equips an organism with a, a feature that originally is evolves to serve one purpose and then suddenly once it is there – can be used for a different purpose. Hmm. And one of the most famous examples of this is uh, feathers, the evolution of feathers, which it is felt originally involved in dinosaurs as a kind of insulation. But uh, once those feathers evolved, they were actually quite useful for the evolution of flight. Hmm. And you think love is, is love a similar thing? Yes. I think that love is to— It had this purpose— to, Well, is to flight. Love is yeah. the flight part. Right, so what yeah. were the feathers? Well, the feathers uh-huh. were— in women, uh, it is felt, uh, women evolved uh, attachment to their uh, babies and that eventually this served as a pre-adaptation to love of mates, of the, of the men right. who had impregnated them. So right. in other words, so many men who, who feel like when their partners look at them, you know, she's looking at them as if they were a baby, it, you know, it may be true. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, you know, I, there's a there's – a, there's an anecdote you tell, or a, a, tr- a true thing. Uh-huh. Um, it's, a, it's a story about the Hadza, the ancient people yes. of Tanzania, and the who are hunter-gatherers, kind of the original, uh, still existing hunter-gatherers. You, you list what they say, what they say when they're asked what they want in a mate, and mm-hmm. that it sounds exactly like a contemporary internet dating profile. Yes, sexy, hard worker, only wants you, understanding and gentle, doesn't use, use bad words, cares for kids. That we're, yes. that, 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 that we're so similar in that this yes, thing. Yes, isn't that amazing? That nothing has changed in tens yes. of thousands of years. It's very moving. Um, let's talk about friendship, uh, which, I don't know, you, there's this wonderful quote uh, from you, uh, that, of Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, a friend mm-hmm. may well be reckoned the masterpiece of nature. Mm. And to me, I think especially as I grow older, friendship is one of the most meaningful I would I think of it as a form of love in my life that mm-hmm. just grows more and differently important. Mm-hmm. You make a connection between friendship and the foundations for morality. Yeah, I make a connection between all the elements of the social suite and morality. Mm-hmm. So part of my argument is and here I need to be careful to avoid not everything that's natural is good. Right. But it is the case that many of these virtues that we have been discussing, love and friendship, for example, or cooperation or teaching, et cetera, are capacities that we have been shaped by evolution that are universally seen as good and that are, in my view, necessary for a good society uh, or a society in which we can live together. And and here I'd borrow on moral philosopher Philippa Foote's ideas about you know, how we can reason about the origins of morality. Well, you know what, what what this brings to mind for me. I'm, I'm thinking a lot these days about in conversations around conflict transformation and uh, culture shift, social transformation. And um, but when you have when you have true culture shift, which always has been decades in the making, um, there are these cores of small groups you know, of friendships that formed across difference, which didn't necessarily make people alike or make people agree, but created a different, opened a different possibility for how they could share life. 
Yeah, I, that's right. But so first of all, I, I need to back up actually and say one other piece of information, which is that one of the paradoxical elements of the social suite is the capacity for individual identity. That is to say that we are all unique. And this might seem quite odd. How, how could our uniqueness be essential to our socialness? But it is. And the reason is as follows, that we, we use our faces to communicate our unique identity. So every one of us has a different looking face. Mm. Why? Why is that? Why don't we all have the same face? It's an evolutionary luxury that we are able to each have a different face. Every kidney to do its job in principle should function in the same way. But every face to do its job should in principle look different. Huh. Uh, they should all be different from one another. And not only that, not only do we all have different faces, but you can look at it as a sea of faces and you have the brain power to distinguish one person from another, which is also an evolutionary luxury. So right. we have evolved this capacity to signal and detect our uniqueness. And this is essential for social living because if you don't want someone to fail to feed you when you're an infant and feed some other child – or forget that they had sex with you right. or not remember that you were mean to them and they should avoid you. Right. You need some way of signaling this is me, you know, not some other jerk. Mm. Um, so, so we have evolved this capacity for uniqueness to, which we communicate with our faces and people can detect our specific identities. Other, yeah. other I do. I do species. like that. I had I had written that line for me writing the deep irony that in order to be social, we have to first be individual. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In order to sustain friendships, you have to be able to distinguish one right. conspecific from another. Yeah. And that relates to our capacity to go down a level to the level of individuals, to start seeing each person as a unique human being, not as a kind of member of a group. Right. And therefore – and this is – also part of our tradition and is best instantiated by Martin Luther King's famous, you know, admonition or aspiration, which is that he looked forward to the time when his children would be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Short break, more with Nicholas Christakis. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the winner of this year's Templeton Prize, Dr. Jane Goodall, whose discoveries changed our understanding of humanity's role in an interconnected world at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with sociologist Nicholas Christakis from the Human Nature Lab at Yale. We're exploring his observations from science and life about the underappreciated evolutionary power of goodness. He is perhaps best known for his research on how networks of friendship profoundly affect what we think, feel, and do. He originally trained as a physician, worked in hospice, and did groundbreaking research on the implications of the widowhood effect, the propensity of spouses to die soon after their partners. I'm sure you're you're aware of this because when you speak about the science of this, the evolutionary purpose and function, 
it sounds clinical when, in fact, all of this is very personal, right? At the same time, mm. right? At the same time that it seems mm-hmm. to be genetically encoded and mm-hmm. and a result of evolutionary forces over, you know, longer mm-hmm. historical time than we can comprehend. I mean, for example, you know, going back to your story, you, I found it so moving uh, here reading about you you know your your mother did die when when she was young she was diagnosed when you were even younger um, mm-hmm. i was 6 with hodgkin's disease and uh, you ended up becoming a doctor initially and working in hospice and you yes, said yes all that, my mother's all my mother's sons became doctors but i'm the only so, one that became that's so interesting <laughs> yes. three sons yeah. who then go to medical school and, yes but i'm the only one that became a hospice doctor okay. that's correct <laughs> Um, but that you, you've written that it was your work in hospice with people who were dying that deepened your fascination with universal human inclinations and qualities. Yes. Right? And so, yeah, because yeah, death is another thing that unites us all, isn't it? Yes. And, and, uh, yet, and each death is, you know, yes. in prof- intensely personal. And yet, yes. what, I mean, what was it that you saw there that, of course, death is universal, but it seems like you also experience a universality to the experience of death. Yes. I mean, I think um, I took care of, you know, thousands of people when they were dying. I was probably been present at many hundreds of deaths at the moment of death. And you can't, in my view, spend as much time as I did or as one might with people who are dying and not come away uh, with a number of recognitions. Um, Our mortality and our frailty, you know, we're all soft on the outside, is is so apparent when you take care of people who are dying. Mm. And mm. and in some ways, the, the beauty of our species, my mother died in a very, you know, I took care of, as I said, thousands of people and encountered very few who had quite the kind of death that my mother did. But she was fearless in the face of death. And she spoke about how over the final years, then months, then weeks, then days, then and ultimately hours of her death, how she would let things go. You know, you had to let go of your aspirations to see the future and you had to let go of your hope to see grandchildren and you you can't control your, your body anymore. You can't move your extremities or, or even control your bodily functions and so forth. And you let go, you let go, you let go. And what's the last thing that people let go? Their loved ones. And honestly, I, you know, I, it's extremely rare that in my experience as a hospice doctor, that people let go of their love before they let go of something else. So this, of course, this experience as a physician also informed my scientific interests, as you're noting. Well, it seems to me also that it just informs what you're looking for. Mm. I mean, here's another example of this. When you were studying the widower effect, you started to be intrigued by how we affect each other at a social distance, well beyond what happens with partners, mm-hmm. not restricted to couples or pairs. And you started to think then about social networks as living mm-hmm. things. And that was such interesting language to me because when we speak, when the language of social networks has come into mm-hmm. common vocabulary through, you know, Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and you're, and it doesn't but, seem like a living thing at all, right? Does it? And but you're talking about, and to me, this is also like this is this is really, this is kind of transformative language. Say no, but look at this. Like so, yes, we may all be in using social media, but we are all inhabiting and building and cultivating social mm-hmm. networks, right? Mm-hmm. 
with our yeah, lives. Yeah, the kind of social networks I talk about and I'm interested in, of course, are the not the recent online variety, but the kind of networks that we humans have been making for tens of thousands of years. Right. The face-to-face networks that we're all embedded in and that shape our lives. And, um, you know, a very simple, rapid example I can give someone is that, you know, you're right now, you have friends who have friends who have friends and so forth. You're in this web of social interactions and you can't really see what's happening among your friends, friends, friends or your friends, 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 for example. But right now, one of those people is infected with the flu. And inexorably, inevitably, that pathogen is going to reach you and you will be infected. And so your fate depends on what's happening in this network over which you have no vision and no control. So, so yes, so we are all embedded in these networks. We have evolved to make them. Um, and, and so I realized that the widowhood effect that I had been studying in the lab at the time was not, of course, restricted to husbands and wives and wasn't even restricted to dyads. It, it, was, it, could, it could ripple outwards. And, and that's actually what kind of prompted my shift to begin to study, scientifically study human social networks. Right. Actually. I think this is such important knowledge. I mean, it feels to me like, um, you know, to me, one of the great discoveries of our lifetime is uh, neuroplasticity. Mm. Now, what we're really learning is that that our brains keep forming across the lifespan and that we can have input into that, even mm-hmm. with our behavior, with our choices. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it feels to me like what you're describing is kind of a corollary to that, that we also have agency to realign societally. And I feel like just the first step is seeing, taking seriously uh, that it, we we have this inborn capacity to rise to the better angels of our nature, um, and so does everybody yeah, around us. Yeah, I mean, I think we are equipped with these capacities. Now, uh-huh. we don't always enact them, of course, but right. we do have them. Um, and I think they're like readily available tools for us to rely on to make better, more good uh, societies. That's right. You know, I also it's important to note that you know there are many forces that can steer us away from that. So, yeah. for example. You know, during the period of power of the Stasi in East Germany, uh, they were able to cultivate so much suspicion that friendship became a serious hazard in East Germany, that you couldn't trust anybody. Your friends could be ratting out on you. I think I think after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was discovered that like 50 percent approximately of the population of East Germany were reporting on their friends and yeah, neighbors and but, even family. Well, you know, I I have I, I lived in Berlin in the 80s and have my Stasi mm. file, so I could talk to you about that because it didn't. It it affected friendship. It created boundaries that people that you made instinctively, but it didn't impede. It didn't impede this basic impulse or even the pleasure and importance of it that you're describing. That's good to hear. Yeah. So even the Stasi were unable to suppress. The, yeah, they this were able friendship to capacity. complicate it, but not not make it go away. Mm. Um. You what know, was in your Stasi file, if I may? Well, <laughs> we'll have we'll have coffee next time I'm in New Haven, and I'll okay. Um, Please contact me. <laughs> okay, bring the file. All right. Um, I found it fascinating. Uh, you told a story somewhere about. Um, it, it, so back when you you kind of we didn't even talk about this. We don't have, but you kind of came onto this burst onto the scene originally with your. With your with your work on connectedness and friendship, and the thing that got such attention was your study on how obesity is kind of contagious. Mm. But so there was a lot of press about that, and mm. you told a story somewhere about how the the European emphasis mm-hmm. in reporting that was mm-hmm. different, whereas Americans said, "Are your friends making you fat?" Whereas yes. when the Europeans reported it, was 
Are you making your friends fat? Yes. Are your friends gaining weight? Perhaps you are to blame. (laughs) Which I just love the inversion between America. It was actually the Brits, not the Europeans. Okay. The British headlines were totally the opposite of the American headlines. Yeah. Which just to me speaks to this. To me, what is so uh, empowering about your research is that it does suggest agency. I mean, as you're saying, Mm -hmm. there are many reasons that we aren't living to our best selves. But but this— these are serious capacities, as serious as our capacity to be hateful or evil mm-hmm. or selfish. Yeah, I think you're you're kind of meandering towards the whole topic of free will, which is something that I yeah I struggle with. So I think there's an enormous literature on how you think that you're choosing to buy an iPhone because that's what you want, but actually you have no free will at all. It's all your friends are buying an iPhone and you're just copying them. And even other more remarkable work in the neurosciences that show that people often start actions before they're even aware of them, and it's not just reflexes, and using certain uh, detailed recordings from neurons in the brain. So there's all this literature that suggests that we have much less free will than we think, and many people have looked at our work on social contagion and said that what we have done is sort of delivered a whack to free will and said that, you know, sort of somehow denigrated it or or, yeah, or, no, I, I don't or see limited it that its way. importance. I see yeah, it. But I see you in the category of this social virtue of teaching and social learning. Yes. Like giving us yes. knowledge that can be a form of power to exercise yes. free will. Yes, that's exactly sort of where I was going, which yeah. is that that it, that it all of what I just said is true, but it's equally the case that when you take an action in your life, what our work suggests is that you can affect dozens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of other people, when you act in a nice way to other people, when you teach other people things, when you're cooperative or loving or, or, or show concern for your community, these effects are magnified. And so actually, if anything, I think the importance of free will is raised, not lowered by these discoveries, because it shows that people who take volitional acts of their own will to improve the state of affairs around them can actually have much larger and more dramatic impacts than they had appreciated. And I think that people making choices about how to live their lives and live with others is crucially important and that we have the responsibility to work with the better angels of our nature. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with sociologist Nicholas Christakis. I really care about scholarship and ideas and, and true knowledge, and but I also care about whether those things are lived. Right. And whether mm. they are also brought in relationship with lived experience. And mm. and I think one reason I want to interview you is because I I really see that in your mm-hmm. life. And um, I was very touched by the dedication of your book, um, Blueprint, mm. The World is Better the Closer You Are to Erica, about your wife. Mm. Um, 
I remember actually when we met at a conference, I just through the way you mentioned her, I, I could tell that mm. that this was a very loving relationship. And mm. you, the two of you, you, that you also had adopted siblings growing up and, and you all have several children, older children, and have adopted a, a foster yes, son. We just, yes, yes. Erica and I have embarked on a new adventure. We've just adopted a 10-year-old boy who we adore. Yeah. We've been foster parents for a while. And... Um, and this little child needed a home, and we decided we would take him in. We, uh, my other children are 22 and 25 and 27. Yeah. So it's, um, but I, I grew up in. My mother had three biological children and adopted two others. And in fact, I grew up in an interracial family. So I have a, a black sister and a Chinese brother. And my wife's sister has adopted a child. Uh, so adoption is is also a feature of our extended family. And it feels to me consonant with all these things we've been talking about about our our very interesting capacity as a species to love and to befriend um, beyond biological kinship. It's not a contradiction. It's just kind of a, it's not even a tension. An interplay here between the the science of our evolutionary development and the fact that um, with these qualities you've been, we've been speaking about, this social suite, love, friendship, cooperation, teaching, and social learning, it's not that they're easy or or always fun or always pleasurable, but there is also a great measure of pleasure in them, right? Mm. Something not at all clinical. Um, mm-hmm. Well, generally speaking, um, one of the ways that you can make an animal do more of something is to have it evolve so that it sees that thing as being pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of warm glow, yeah, that kind Mm -hmm. of warm glow we all feel in the company of our friends, I think is an evolved capacity. We seek out our friendships because we feel good when we're with our friends. And actually being kind and being generous, those things also make us feel good. We don't always yes. do them. So I, so I just wanted this kind of circles around to me to this uh, phrase or this word I think you've coined, which I, I find very intriguing, of sociodicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I studied theology and so – but I don't, I don't think everybody who doesn't study theology, which is most people uh, learn the language of mm-hmm. theodicy, which mm-hmm. is just this ancient question, very important in the Enlightenment and in Western civilization of how can you believe in a good God if – Terrible yes. things happen. And, How can we justify right. God if, if right. especially an omnipotent, omniscient, beneficent deity, given mm-hmm. how much suffering and awfulness we see in the world? Right. How do we explain the origins of evil? Right. And sociodicy is your idea. Yeah. So how can we vindicate a confidence in the goodness of society despite the manifest evil in society? I mean, I, I'm well aware. I'm not, you know, a Dr. Pangloss. I, I'm well aware that... Every century, every millennium is replete with horrors. You know, we have slavery and pogroms and colonialism and violence and hatred and venal actions of all kinds. And um, But equally, we have goodness and of the kinds that we've been discussing today. And so for me, this issue of sociodicy is a vindication of our – of our confidence in the goodness of society despite these horrors. Mm-hmm. And and what I'm trying to highlight is that the – that even our – evil qualities are features of our Mm. humanity and Mm. they are part – in fact, we often – these good qualities that we've evolved are in response to those evil qualities. I mean, I'll just give you one very quick example. 
human beings have very few, if any, natural predators. The leading killer of human beings is other human beings. Right. And so right. we've had to evolve to cope with this threat to our survival, hmm. which is each other. Yeah. And so we have evolved. We have evolved these capacities that make us capable of a convivial existence by and large. I'm not saying we don't kill each other. We do. Yeah. I recognize that. But they're all connected. You see, they're all intermingled with each other. And I think that we can gain better insights into our our common humanity, our shared humanity, by by taking more seriously and focusing more attention on these wonderful qualities, these wonderful capacities that we have evolved to have. And I really believe that. You know, I, I wrote a book about wisdom a few years ago and realized after the fact that I'd never defined wisdom. And so that was one of the first things people would ask me when I was speaking about it afterwards. And and what I what I realized when I when I sat down to think about, you know, a definition of wisdom as opposed to knowledge or accomplishment. Which, which, mm. So a wise life can certainly contain knowledge and accomplishment. And those are things you can point at and quantify or mm. you can point at and you can describe. But I think that the measure of a wise life is the imprint it has on other lives around it, right? Like when, mm. when any of us start speaking about the wise people we've known, that's kind of mm-hmm. the story we're telling. And mm-hmm. you're, you're thinking about... <laughs> the natural social networks that predated social media by that hundreds of thousands of years, um, the primacy of friendship and love and these these qualities we have that we don't stop to to treasure and mm. to take as seriously actually helps me see uh, helps me think differently. You know, helps is kind of good gives nuance to that idea of what is mm-hmm. wisdom in our midst. It's it's also mm-hmm. a function of that that wise people emerge from that. Hmm. I would agree. I wonder how you, at this point in your life, would, this is a vast question, this question of what it means to be human, but how would you start to think that, to to answer that, just kind of think that through right now, what you've learned about what it means to be human? I, you know, I love that phrase, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? And, And I've always been of the belief that, you know, if possible, and not everyone has this opportunity, although everyone can, I think, in some measure, I mean, even Viktor Frankl in in the concentration camps in Man's Search for Meaning writes a little bit about this a related idea, is to try to live a life that is what I would call grand and romantic, you know, which is to is to be in tune with and aware of the opportunities for transcendence, you know, to move beyond the everyday desires, needs, uh, you know, very physical reality that we all face, of course, and see the fact that there are other things, whether it's love and friendship that we've been talking about today or other sorts of things that are take us outside of our corporal um, uh, you know, bodies. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think that cultivating that capacity, cultivating the ability as you go through your day to see the opportunities for transcendence is a wonderful way to live. And I think it's possible to do that in, in, in almost any circumstance. Um, and I think it makes life much, much better and m- more enjoyable. 
um, I was very affected, and I haven't been able to find the source for this, but when I was in medical school, so this was in the 1980s, I, I heard or read an interview. I think these Buddhist monks had come to MIT, and it was in the early days of MRI scanning, and they were scanning their brains or something and yeah. looking at how the discipline of meditation had changed the, the brains of these monks. And one of these guys was interviewed about how he copes with moving through the world and all the kind of knocks and slights and things that happen in anyone's day. And he told the following story about how he was constantly re-narrating whatever he encountered. He was always trying to see it in a good light. And this being in Boston, someone said, well, what if, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic? Right. <laughs> and, and the mug said, he said, he said, well, he goes, I would imagine that – in the backseat of the car, there was a woman delivering a baby <laughs> and and the husband was driving the car and he was desperate to get his wife to the hospital because a new life was being born. Right. And, and that all of a sudden, I wouldn't think of it as being cut off in traffic anymore. Mm. And I heard this story and I pulled over and I was like – Oh my God! I want to be like that guy, right. you know, like, and and uh, if possible. Now, you know, I I don't have the discipline of a Buddhist monk, but but I think that's the right way to be. Honestly, I really do. And and this is not. I want to emphasize. This is not in a kind of Pollyanna-ish way of yep. you know ignoring all the evil in the world or 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 you know not defending yourself or any of those things. I'm just saying that if possible, in moving through your day, so much better to see it that way. Nicholas Christakis is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University, where he's also the director of the Human Nature Lab and co-director of the Institute for Network Science. He's the author of Connected, How Your Friends, Friends, Friends Affect Everything You Feel, Think, and Do, and Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. In October 2020, he published Apollo's Arrow, the profound and enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.